Atamaria, welcome to First Up. This is Rapa, that is Wednesday, the 21st of September, Ko Nathan Rarere, I hope. Coming up, cloud seeding is the newest way to open the heavens. Find out why New Zealand is yet to jump on the bandwagon. Our Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, is in the United States. A correspondent reports on her very busy schedule. And Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis tells me it's not sneaky to release the Sam Uffendale Inquiry report on the eve of the Queen's funeral. The challenge was that the leader received the report late on Thursday night. He had a full day of engagements on Friday. He then went to digest it over the weekend before coming to a view. And his goal was to communicate it to everyone as soon as he could. Maria, good morning, good morning, good morning. Welcome to First Up. I'm Nathan Rarere and it's always an exciting time to start on Wednesdays because we fire up the, the phone bill and we go to Australia and waiting in Brisbane uh, where she's dusting off the Republican flags probably is uh, our correspondent Pam Corkery. Morena Pam, how are you? Probably I don't know if you are, but I know what the nation's thinking of it, aren't they? Good morning. They are thinking of it and um, good on you for expending on the, um, on the phone bill. Yeah. Yeah, so um, the Guardian poll has just come out, essential poll it's called, on whether, you know, we want a republicanism or um, or just to stay with royalty. So it's a bit premature and a tad tacky about the, from the Guardian, considering that people have just finished crying their way through the um, funeral procession and things like that. I think... One in five Australians watched. There was a peak of 5.17 million viewers for that. So anyhow, they bust out this survey and the Australian Republican movement is just prepping to reignite its campaign um, to have a poll on on the um, thought of a, of a republic. But uh, no, the figures aren't great. 43% support Australia becoming a public and republic and 52 um, wanted to be under royalty, so you know. I mean, why would you do this? It's still yeah. it's a deal, but um, you know, forty three percent can't be sniffed at. But still, um, no. they're not going to get it, and this is a bad time to talk about it. Yeah, so so it won't have the uh, we won't see that green uh, flag with the boxing kangaroo on it soon. It'll we're, we're going to stay with the the Aussie flag as we know it then. Which is a very dull flag, but yes, you know, <laughs> similar to ours, yeah. <laughs> hey, now, this is um, these criminal investigations, if you could tell me about this, the results of thousands of criminal cases now being questioned in Australia after untrue forensic lab statements. What is that? This is a disaster. There yeah. was a commission of inquiry in June um, into the state, the Queensland state-run forensic service, and police had started getting sniffy about sexual assault cases going back to 2018, decisions that had been made. Turned out the lab had decided to stop any detailed testing if it was low DNA. Instead, they would just report the results contained no or insufficient information. Well, that's not good enough. Um, so this, they're going through samples now. They'll have to probably thousands of cases. And as is being said, violent offenders might still be at large, you know, if the evidence wasn't against them. And victims might never get justice. If there's a double jeopardy situation, then they'll probably get acquittal in this situation. Case, it's an unbelievable and unprecedented screw up in yeah. Australian policing history. 
Oh, yeah. yeah, the amount of people that would be convicted off that and people, you know, as a jury, you'd go, oh, well, that's what the science says, so off you go. That's terrible. Yeah. Um, AMP, they've been fined, uh, fined for charging uh, services it never provided. How did they manage to pull that off? I know, it's a good trick, isn't it? And yeah. I've been agonising the so many figures here, so that's why I'm a wee bit cautious, but here I go. So they charged fees for super and customers, their investments, without doing any work on it, you know, without saying, well, look, we should shift the money to here and here because that's gone down. The financial giant will have to pay $14.6 million. Um, AMP said they had only set $4.5 million, uh, for payment out, so they're going to have to dig deeper. The fine is almost 9% of the profit AMP made in the first half of this year. So the Australian Securities and um, Investment Commission argues that they, well, proved that the company had ripped off more than 1,500 customers over a four-year period. And they've had to pay earlier since an inquiry into them up to um, $627 million. Oof. So to 330,000 customers for no service misconduct. They were also charging fees on, on people who didn't live even, but still had a few bob in there. Oh, that's terrible. Um, it is, isn't it? Now, let, let's, this one here, it's sort of, uh, uh, well, I mean, I guess it was a record, but um, it's very sad. Australia's oldest man has succumbed to COVID-19. How old was Frank, I'm trying to say his name right, Frank Moore? Yeah, that's it. He died at the age of 110. It's particularly soppy of me, but until recently he had lived independently in his own apartment in Sydney but moved to the New South Wales coast to be with one of his sons after he had a a fall. One son says he lived life to the full in recent months. He did exercises every day, had plenty of visitors, um, and then he went to have an afternoon nap a few weeks after the COVID on Saturday afternoon and never woke up. Oh. Well, I know he'd been married seventy years. His wife died at ninety-two. How old well, is his son? I was thinking too. When you said went to live with his son, that must be quite an effort for his son as well. If, if Frank's yeah, one hundred and ten, goodness that's me! Pretty, but it's kind of a lovely story. He said he had had the best life. This is what he had said beforehand, not knowing he was going to die already, mm. and that when he did die, he'd be fine with that because you know he he couldn't have asked for more in a oh. life. Oh, that's yeah, beautiful. I know. Yeah. Pam, thank you so yeah. much for that. There she is, Love out of you. Australia, uh, every week, uh, and of course start the show with her every Wednesday. Well, this excited me yesterday, and if you've ever listened to podcasts and true crime podcasts, uh, this will be one uh, that will probably interest you. So, a judge in the United States city of Baltimore has quashed a man's murder conviction in a case that spawned the hit true crime podcast, Serial. Serial is the most listened to podcast in world history. More than 340 million people have listened uh, to, well, downloads, so they might have played it to friends as well, so more than that, 340 million downloads of the Serial podcast. The man in question is Adnan Syed, and he was 18 when he was sentenced to life in prison for the death of his ex-girlfriend, Heyman Lee, in 1999. Here's the story from the BBC's David Willis. Adnan Syed allowed himself just the faintest of smiles as he left court after 23 years in jail. His supporters have long maintained his innocence, yet every appeal over the course of the last two decades has been denied. 
Anand Syed was found guilty of strangling his former high school sweetheart, Haymin Lee, and burying her body in a shallow grave. She was 18 at the time of her death. He was 17. And were it not for one of the foremost true crime podcasts, Mr. Saeed might have been destined to spend the rest of his life behind bars. The most popular podcast in the world at the time, Serial not only focused worldwide attention on the case, but raised serious questions about the validity of his conviction. Doubts prosecutors in Mr. Syed's hometown of Baltimore came to share when they set about re-examining the evidence. At their behest, a judge has now overturned his conviction and released him pending the completion of the new inquiry. There were gasps and applause in the courtroom as the judge gave the order for Mr. Syed's shackles to be removed. Through our review, our reinvestigation revealed that the original prosecutors and the subsequent prosecutors in the Attorney General's office failed to disclose relevant information about alternative suspects one of whom threatened to kill the victim and had motive to kill the victim, and both of whom had a pattern of violence against women. Prosecutors are waiting on the outcome of new DNA tests using technology that was unavailable at the time of the trial. But if he didn't kill Heyman Lee, then who did? This re-examination of the evidence more than two decades after her death has left the victim's family feeling betrayed. The way the state's attorney's office acted in this case is just inexcusable. They knew about this for more than a year. It was clear from their conduct they absolutely did not want to afford this victim any meaningful opportunity to address this motion. My clients, all they wanted was information. They want the truth to come out. Mobbed as he walked free for the first time in 23 years, Adnan Syed has been released on home detention. Baltimore prosecutors now have 30 days in which to charge him again with Heyman Lee's murder or set him free. David Willis with that report. It's quarter past five. Thank you very much for listening to First Up here at RNZ National with me, Nathan Radadi. Uh, if you listened to the Serial podcast, if you were one of the 340 million people worldwide who downloaded that, uh, let us know that, what your thoughts were uh, on yesterday. Are you surprised to hear that that, um, that happened for Adnan yesterday? Uh, also, too, I wanted to talk as well about the release of the report into the conduct of the MP Sam Uffendell, uh, which was on the eve of the Queen's funeral. Do you think it was sneaky to release it on that day? What do you think? 2101, or, or is it, was it not at all? 2101, email first up at rnz.co.nz. We'll go to the Middle East now where the focus is on Iran's morality police. After the death of a young woman in their custody, violent clashes have been reported in Iran in the wake of uh, Masa Amini's death. Uh, with me now in Doha is our correspondent, Alex Baird. Kia ora, Alex. How are you? Atamaria Nathan, very warm as usual, but good. <laughs> I bet you are. Hey, um, tell me about this case there, um, the, the case of the death of the young woman, uh, and the, U- the, the UN's now calling for an investigation into the death. What's the latest with this? Yes, this is an absolutely awful case. Basically, since the, uh, the uh, Islamic Revolution in Iran in the late 70s, the hijab No, I think we've unfortunately lost Alex there with our uh, fancy new technology. So uh, we're going to try and try and oh, get him. Are we still connected? Are oh we no, still there connected? you are. Yes, yes, you're back. You're back. It's good. Yeah, it's we right. We've got it. You know, just I, I just I just banged the side of the TV Fonzie style to get it working. So we'll see. We'll go again next. See if you can tell us oh, about we go. this latest. 
Yeah, so, so an awful case here. Basically, since the Islamic Revolution in Iran in the late 1970s, the hijab has been a compulsory um, piece of clothing to wear for women in Iran. There's been a lot of pushback over time. There's been a lot of protests about this. And this uh, young woman, Masa Armeni, basically, she was deemed to not be wearing the correct kind of hijab, wasn't wearing it in the correct way. And the morality police picked her up with the intention of taking to her to a re-education centre to teach her basically how to wear a hijab properly. And while she was there, she had a heart attack and then fell into a coma and died. Awful stuff, because she was a very young woman and never had um, health issues before. But this has sparked outrage across Iran, and you're seeing protests in cities across Iran. Um, this has been dealt with very harshly, as it usually is, by the Iranian authorities in Kurdistan, where many of the protests were, as, as um, uh, Masa was an ethnic Kurd. Five people reportedly have been killed. Uh, the internet effectively was switched off in central Tehran, in the capital. Um, and these, as I said, protests in Iran, they always get this very, very heavy-handed approach from the government. Now, the UN is, as you said, demanding an independent, uh, independent investigation into the death of this young woman. It seems that the president is open to this idea, but it'll be, you know, a wait and see as to whether that comes to anything. But just another example of people in Iran fighting for their rights and losing their lives in the protest, oh, process, rather. That's horrible. Can you tell me why have the banks in Lebanon, why have they closed for three days? Oh, this is such a bizarre story and one I actually kind of love. So basically, um, Iran, Lebanon rather has been plunged into this awful economic crisis for well over a year now. The Lebanese pound, its uh, national currency, has lost 95% of its value. More than 70% of the population are now living in poverty. And basically, in response to this, banks were freaking out, thinking that people were going to want to withdraw their US dollars. And so banks across the country had imposed massive restrictions, people barely able to um, take out any of their money. If you can imagine going to a bank and the bank saying, yeah, you may have $200,000 here, but you can't withdraw any of it. Um, this is what people in Lebanon have been hearing and people are now sick of it. And so you've had a spate, eight in one day recently, where uh, Lebanese uh, depositors are going to the bank demanding their money be withdrawn and pulling guns. One man went in with a gun and poured petrol through the bank, just demanding to withdraw his own money. We've been hearing some pretty awful cases. For instance, uh, one man has 500,000 US dollars in the bank, but isn't allowed to withdraw any of it, so he's living in poverty. So anyway, the banks have freaked out about this and have imposed a, a three-day nationwide closure. This is all uh, banks across the country because of the security concerns, but it's really just showing you how desperate People are in Lebanon when they, in fact, have money but can't access any of it. That's going to make the weirdest movie ever, running in with <laughs> the gun and going, give me my money. <laughs> exactly, their money, their own money. It's bizarre. Their own money. Alex, thank you very much for your time. He joins us every week out of Doha. That is Alex Beard. Twenty past five. I'm Nathan Rarere, and you're listening to First Up on RNZ National. So coming up, you're going to hear all about cloud seeding with the very excellent Tom Taylor, and also Deputy Leader of the National Party Nicola Willis tells us why a secret report was enough to reinstate Sam Offendale's position in the party caucus. Well, this week on Trade Me, a South Canterbury heritage property that is one of the most amazing houses ever featured in this slot. Also, your chance to bid on the opportunity to own. A new Ford Mustang, but only for a couple of weeks. But first, producer Jeremy Parkinson talks with Ruby Topsand of Trade Me about the perfect bed for a kid who dreams of that supercar life. 
truly and it is in wonderful condition considering that it's 10 years old so yeah bright red based on the ferrari 360f 430 and made for a single mattress here the uh maker behind this who's listed it for sale has outlined the recent touch-up that he has given it to so he's had a a wee go on the stone chips and and fix up all the usual bumps and scratches so it's looking really fresh and great for its new owner ready to go to its new owner with a current bit of 132 you say 346 watch lists that's quite high isn't it that's very high so i suspect this one will go for a lot more than its current top bit of $132 when it closes on Sunday night. But yeah, you're certainly not the only only one interested in this that is not a child. There are quite a few questions in the Q&A section from adults um, asking if it might fit a fully grown adult male, asking how fast it goes, whether it can be posted to Invercargill. So yeah, I think there's a this, this one's certainly got a lot of attention and as it should what a beautiful creation and it's the right colour too because if you want a Ferrari you have a red Ferrari I, I'm led to believe and, and I love the bedtime number plate to boot just a just a great feature there yeah that, that's quite a cool one from Ferraris to Ford Mustangs now this is uh, an auction which will see the winner own a Ford Mustang one of the new Ford Mustangs for two weeks. Who's it raising funds for? You said in raising money for Downlight's Charitable Trust and the wonderful work they do around New Zealand. A kind of special opportunity, I guess, because it's not often, I mean, perhaps you could lease a Mustang for a couple of weeks, but this means that you can also make a donation so you can feel pretty good about it. And yeah, I mean, I think perhaps for somebody that just wants to dip their toes into Mustang ownership and see how it feels before perhaps they, they then decide to commit or decide it's not for them. And current but a five thousand dollars also closing on Sunday night. We might, we may well see this one climb a bit higher there too. Yeah, it's a cool looking car, the new Mustang. Uh, they went through a period there th- through the eighties and nineties where they weren't much to look at, and this harks back to those sixties, uh, the sixties look of the classic Mustang fastback. They are cool looking cars. So that one raising funds for Downlights Charitable Trust. So have a check that one out on Trade Me. And your property listing this week two two two. Horrible Road, Timaru, and this isn't horrible by any stretch. It's the most amazing mm. looking house in that um, stone look that you see throughout Christchurch and Canterbury. Tell us about Claremont Country Estate. It's quite something, isn't it? So it was built in 1890 and it's got five bathrooms, 10 bedrooms, it's got gardens, manicured gardens surrounding the property, a library, a study, commercial kit thing and beyond that you would ever want in a property. And if you go into the history of this one, it has lived quite a few lives really. So in um, 1955, it served as sort of base for the Catholic uh, marriage when they took ownership and they also built a chapel um, which is detached but very close to the main property that was built in 1890. So it's got quite a lot of history there and it, it does feel that you get the sense from the photos and they've put a beautiful vintage car at the front for the photo shoot for the listing, which is beautiful to see as well. But yeah, like you say, it's got that kind of gothic look that is unique to that time and, and the South Island kind of as well. Those beautiful windows and it's just in such beautiful nick. So somebody, there's got to be somebody for this one. Yeah, man, it really, it's just like so many of these um, properties we see uh, on, on feature on this Trade Me section are sort of modern or uh, done mm-hmm. up from 
older buildings and brought up to modern standards, but this one is like straight out of the time that it was built, inside and out. Truly, yep, it's something else. And the gardens are in such beautiful condition too and and, and of that time. And where can uh, listeners find these on the main page of Trade Me? Yeah, all of these listings can be found in the Cool Auctions strip, which is on the homepage. There's a couple of other goodies in there too, so definitely worth keeping an eye on, on, on that part of the website. Yeah, that was Trade Me's Ruby Topsand. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. It's the day of our life. We call the 21st of September. It's easier when I forget, uh, when I remember to turn the microphone on. So this is, I'm going to start with a how. Here we go. In 1990, on this day, the movie Goodfellas was released nominated for six Academy Awards, six Golden Globe Awards, it won one. How? How? Anyway, uh, the only uh, Oscar that it won was Joe Pesci's performance there as Tommy DeVito, um, thrashed by Dances with Wolves. I mean, Dances with Wolves, great, you know, good film. and But really, yeah, yeah, you know, Tatanka, that. It's a Tonka bag's very good. But yeah, anyway, 32 years ago today, the story of Henry Hill, James Conway, and of course, Tommy DeVito, uh, Goodfellas, came out, regarded as the greatest film Martin Scorsese ever made. It's fantastic. Let's have a look at the movies. Uh, uh, stay in the movies, sorry. On this day in 1912, Chuck Jones was born. If you're going, what is that name? The creator helped create Daffy Duck, Bugs Bunny, Speedy Gonzales, Roadrunner, Wiley, Coyote, uh, Pepe Le Pew, Porky Pig, and Tweety Pie. He did okay. Uh, happy birthday to these two wonderful people. Bill Murray making people laugh in a deadpan way. He's 72 years old today. And Stephen King just scaring everybody. Uh, he's 75 years old today. It's also happy birthday to Dave Coulier. Uncle Joey from Full House. Now, if you're wondering why am I talking about him today, do you know the song? This is Alanis Morissette's 1995 hit, You Ought to Know. This is a song about Dave Coulier. And there's a wonderful story of Dave Coulier hearing this song on the radio. It's pretty cool. Who's the singer? Hey, that sounds a bit like my ex. It is his ex. And then he got the CD and he listened to it and went, oh, this whole album's about me. There you go. Uncle Joey from Full House. On this day in 1915, a man called Cecil Chubb uh, buys the uh, monument Stonehenge for £6,600. In 1937, The Hobbit was released for the very first time. And in 2000, oh, sorry, 1981, Burleys gained its independence from the United Kingdom. And those were all happenings on this day, September the 21st. Joining us now from the business team, it's Anand Zaki. Kia ora, Anand. How are you? Very well, sir. How are you? I'm pretty good. Tell me about this this controversy at this major vegan food company. Yeah, you may have heard of the vegan food giant Beyond Meat. Yes. Uh, very well known American company that makes the plant-based uh, meat alternatives. Well, its uh, chief operating officer has been arrested for reportedly biting a man's nose after a bit of a disagreement. Wait, wait, was the, man's vegan, nose, was the man's nose made of tofu? <laughs> you're like, you're, tofu? I was thinking it's not very vegan uh, when, you, when you bite someone's nose. Uh, <laughs> uh, Douglas Ramsey is his name. <laughs> so... 
Look, the incident um, occurred on a Saturday night, as all incidents seem to happen. Yeah, um, yeah, as he, yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, he left a car park in Fayetteville, Arkansas, after a college football game. Uh, now, a local TV channel reported that he got involved in a bit of a d- dispute with another driver and bit the man, uh, ripping the flesh uh, on the tip of his nose. Oh, my goodness. Um, now, the 53-year-old faces charges of terroristic threatening. I've never heard of that charge before. Um, and third-degree battery. And he was released the following day after posting uh, an $11,000 bond. He joined Beyond Meat in December last year as uh, chief operating officer. And at the time, he said he was proud to join its mission to produce uh, delicious products that are healthier for their customers and more sustainable for the planet. Uh, so maybe a bit of taste testing there. Um, yeah. Now, Beyond Meat and Douglas Ramsey are yet to make a comment about this, but um, I'm sure this will. Uh, uh, <laughs> this is not the last time we'll hear about this story. Just going through the tick sheet Saturday night. Tick, college football in America. Tick. There we are. Hey, um, just very quickly tell me about this residential sector continues to power the local construction industry. Yeah, this is really interesting. It's an index that we follow. It's the Crane Index by Ryder Levitt-Bucknell. It tracks the long-term cranes on construction sites across the seven main centres. And in the third quarter, there were 148 long-term cranes, which is a record. 104 of those in Auckland. And the residential sector had a record 77 cranes operating. Um, So... That's really driving the construction industry at the moment. Um, now, Ryder Levitt Bucknell says the sector is remaining resilient uh, and the value of work put in place uh, over the year end of June stands at more than $30 billion. Uh, but look, the outlook isn't as strong. Uh, residential development is looking weaker, looking uh, into 2023, perhaps unsurprising given the rising costs and uh, falling demand. Yeah, thank you uh, very much, Anand. Uh, there you go. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Reports this morning at 10.27. Let's go to the money markets now where your Kiwi dollar is out there shopping and here is what it is buying. 59.01 US cents, 88.1 Australian cents, 59.09 Euro cents, 51.08 British pence, uh, 4.14 yuan and 84.8 Japanese yen. Well, it's been a very wet winter here in Aotearoa. Meanwhile, China has recorded its worst drought conditions since records began. Now, to counter this, the country has turned to a technique that involves firing rockets into clouds to induce more rainfall. Cloud seeding. It may sound like something out of a science fiction movie, but it's been put to use by many countries around the world, and it's often done as a way to boost hydropower. Yet here in New Zealand, it's never really gotten off the ground, as Tom Taylor reports. Aircraft are firing silver iodide missiles into the clouds in drought-stricken provinces around China's Yangtze River. Cloud seeding, precipitation enhancement, rain milking, the operation has many names, but what it boils down to is a desperate attempt to provide water for crops, hydropower and human consumption. Although it might seem like a futuristic operation, it's been used to varying levels of success in several countries, including the United States and Australia. 
Associate Professor at Waikato University Earl Bardsley explains how a small chemical trigger can set off a chain reaction in the sky. You have high clouds with super cool water droplets in the upper portions of the cloud. And if you introduce a nuclei into that typical water, something that has a rather similar structure to an ice crystal, like silver iodide has been used a lot, that can trigger off a freezing of a small number of those typical water droplets. And they splinter off when they freeze into other pieces of ice, and that sets off a sort of a chain reaction. So all of a sudden, the whole upper portion of the cloud becomes converted from a population of supercooled liquid water droplets to ice fragments, and the whole thing becomes unstable, and the cloud grows. And that induced vertical instability is what generates the rainfall. Mr Bardsley says the science is sound. The question is whether it can be put to good use. He says clouds in drought-stricken areas are ill-suited to cloud seeding because their water droplets are too small to convert into rainfall, meaning China's efforts may be more of a political move than a viable solution. It's like a desperation measure. Sometimes it's it's almost like I think it's public relations. Closer to home, cloud seeding operations have had a contentious history. Six years ago in southern Tasmania, government-owned energy company Hydro Tasmania dropped silver iodide from cloud seeding planes one day before severe flooding hit the region. Experts found that the operation was not to blame for the floods. Nevertheless, Hydro Tasmania put a pause on its flights in June 2016, and the company told RNZ it no longer conducts a cloud seeding program. Mr Bardsley says legal issues like those experienced in Australia may be what's holding New Zealand back. If by chance uh, a flood was induced, or maybe an avalanche was induced, if you were trying to enhance snowfall, the people that carried out the operation could conceivably be um, litigated against and held responsible for the damage that was caused. Even though that might not have caused that damage, they have to prove that it didn't, and it would be very difficult. On this side of the Tasman in 2010, two dry springs in a row had led to a double drought in Waikato. Farmers were losing thousands of dollars in income, and Stu Wadey, head of Waikato Federated Farmers at the time, felt it was his duty to investigate any options available to improve the situation. At that time, thinking out, say, what can we do? What can we do to get through these droughts without having to uh, dry off our stock, which is a lot of, lot of income to farming families, but also a lot of export income to New Zealand. Mr Wadey met with a top dressing pilot who had conducted cloud seeding experiments in the South Island and they took the concept to then Agriculture Minister David Carter. But finding a source of funding proved difficult and the plans dried up. Mr Wadey now says that the conditions in Waikato 12 years ago would likely have been too dry for cloud seeding to have any real impact on crops. It's no good waiting till the soil moisture depth sets 120 mils. That means that's dry and you need 120 mils of water to bring uh, soil back to normal uh, moisture state for growing crops or, or grass. Tasting, in my opinion, is not a reactive tool. It's, it's got to be proactive. Mr Bardsley agrees and says that one of the only options for cloud seeding in New Zealand may be to increase snowfall in the Southern Alps, building up the potential for hydropower. By building up the snowpack in winter, you might be able to get more river flow coming down in summer. So in that way, you can help the situation the following summer by um, inducing uh, precipitation, particularly snow, at a time when it's actually not needed but can be used later on when it melts. And the financial benefit of any such operation, which may only increase rainfall by a few percent, would need to outweigh the cost. You have to sit down and sort of ask, well, how much is it going to cost to seed the clouds and what's the value of the extra water that we, we're getting out of it? 
And that's something that you'd have to think about very carefully because if you're doing it on an ongoing basis, it can get expensive. Both MetService and Niwa declined to comment for this story, saying there was no one with enough expertise in the area. So while China ramps up its operations, any future for cloud seeding in New Zealand remains uncertain. That was Tom Taylor with that report, and just I was listening to that. I remember growing up in uh, Hastings. Hail guns. Are hail guns still a thing? Are they still? I, yeah, I haven't been around the orchards recently. Two and one. Hail guns. Are they still a thing? It is twenty to six. I'm Nathan Rarity, and you're listening to First Up at RNZ National. So, what have we got between now and six? Well, Nicola Willis gives us her take on Sam Uffendale being reinstated on the back of a secret King's Council report, and Anna Burns Francis is with us from New York, where the Prime Minister is attending this year's United Nations General Assembly. Well, every week we speak to National's Deputy Leader Nicola Willis about the latest in politics, and of course, with Tuesday's program being solely about Queen Elizabeth II's funeral, this interview is being aired today. So, Tauranga MP Sam Uffendale has returned to the party fold on the back of a secret King's Council report. So secret, in fact, that Christopher Luxon apparently didn't even share it with his own party. I asked Ms Willis about the contents of the report. As the leader said yesterday, following serious allegations about an incident that had occurred at Otago University, which were raised first on Radio New Zealand, we instigated an independent inquiry And the purpose of that inquiry was to investigate those allegations and to offer people an opportunity to come forward with any other allegations that may have suggested any ongoing pattern of bullying. That was an independent process by an eminently qualified King's Council lawyer. She has conducted a thorough investigation that has allowed for people to take part in a confidential manner. She's provided a report to the leader, and on the basis of her findings, he has returned Sam to our caucus. I'm just wondering, so who set the parameters for, for what the King's Council would be investigating? Because that's that's a very key thing as well. Like, you know, that I mean, will we know in the public what, what she was asked to investigate? Well, look, the leader was very open and clear that he understood that there had been a terrible incident while Sam was at King's College and in his own words he had at school acted as a thug. That was known and understood. Hmm. What the investigation was looking into was what was this incident at Otago University and is there anything out there to suggest that that thuggish bullying behaviour persisted beyond Sam's school years because right from the beginning of this the leader's view and my view has been there will be people in Parliament who have made terrible mistakes as young people but there has to be a place in parliament for people who have made mistakes who have atoned who have apologized and who are better people today but in this case what we wanted to be clear of was that this behavior had stopped at high school okay so did she conclude then that mr Riffendale did not do what was alleged in the media by the the woman or is it just that she wasn't able to obtain evidence to conclude that Well, as the leader said yesterday, the independent investigation found that the Otago University incident was found not to have occurred as described. So she was lying? No, that's not what has been said. Okay, right. So it didn't happen as occurred. I'm just wondering, the release date was caused quite a bit of kerfuffle. Could you guys not see that releasing it on that day could come across as sneaky to many people? 
Oh, well, look, the challenge was that the leader received the report late on Thursday night. He had a full day of engagements on Friday. He then went to digest it over the weekend before coming to a view. To a view. And his goal was to communicate it to everyone as soon as he could. And frankly, Nathan, if we'd taken any longer, you'd be asking me why we sat on it for so long. Okay, really? Okay. So you won't be releasing an executive summary? Because I know Labor did when the same you know, council investigated their report into that summer camp scandal that they had. Well, yesterday what you had was the party president make a statement followed by Chris Luxon, which did summarise the findings of that report. Both of their statements and the statement by Sam Uffindell uh, had gone past Maria Jew prior to being scripted so that they could be confident that the way they summarised the report was accurate. Uh, and so there was a summary provided. Hey, um, and I, I guess if it sort of feels a bit like a badgering here, it's, it's because, you know, you've got a new candidate that you're looking for in New Plymouth. So I guess what people want to know and your party faithful is they'll want to know the selection process. Will it be different this time? How much will party leadership be involved? Because you don't want to go through something like this again. Well, what Chris has done is made very clear his expectations to the party about what he wants to see from that process. He won't get involved in individually selecting candidates, but there is a rigorous process in place whereby candidates are vetted. And what he has said is, of course, we've taken learnings from what has happened. I just said learnings. I mean lessons. (laughs) That is not a word that I intend to be a user of. Um, He has, of course, taken lessons from what's occurred in the past, and so has the party, Hmm. and and those lessons will be brought to bear uh, on decision-making going forward. Okay. Let's switch to the economy now. I mean, uh, um, New Zealand's dodged recession, and also to the perception, I know from the finance people we've spoken to, is that government and reserve bank moves have broken the back of inflation, while other countries are still on a a pretty terrible spiral. Is it time for credit where credit's due? Look, I'm always happy to see the economy growing, so I welcome the news that we bounced back from that contracting economy in the first quarter. That's positive. But I think the challenge for New Zealanders is we haven't seen the back of inflation. It hasn't come down. It's been on a constant upward trajectory. And for New Zealanders, what that means in real terms is that prices have been increasing faster than their wages, meaning many people do feel like they're going backwards. And so I think that's the economic reality we're facing, that New Zealanders have less purchasing power in many cases. They're looking at really steeply climbing interest rates that are making their mortgage more expensive. And frankly, a lot of people are having real challenges paying the bills right now. That is New Zealand's economic reality. And until we see a lid put back on inflation, I think a lot of people are going to continue to feel this is a tough economy to be working in. Yeah, I mean, it is is expensive. Tell me how optimistic you are, or not optimistic you are, about New Zealand business right now then. Well, when I visit New Zealand businesses, there's two stories. On the one hand, they're positive that the world still wants New Zealand's products in a big way and demand is right up there. But then the negative part of the story is that in many cases, businesses can't meet that demand. So many of them are crying out for workers. Others of them are nervous and uncertain about the future because of rising interest rates and actually because of some of the risks they see from government policy, whether that's plans to put in place a new jobs tax to fund a social insurance scheme, plans to change the way that employers negotiate with their employees, that uncertainty is really sapping 
business confidence. So it's a tale of two stories, but I, I'm confident that with good government policy, we could get business back on track again. Obviously, the, the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II has been the, the largest story on earth. It passes to King Charles now. Already I see some of the Caribbean countries are exploring leaving the Commonwealth. Where do you stand on New Zealand as a republic? Obviously, it's for every country to determine what's best for them. In my case, I can see that there isn't major problems with the status quo for New Zealand, but there could be some real risks and costs with change that we would need to get right. And I'm just not sensing a big appetite from New Zealanders to take on those risks and that uncertainty right now. That's Nicola Willis. The professionals of Morning Report are here after six. And it's Susie Ferguson to uh, tell us what is happening on the show today. Kia ora, Susie. Kia ora, how are you? I'm I'm very good. I was, I, was, uh, I was a big listener to the serial podcast, so I was very excited uh, yesterday to mm. see that there's some just 340 million downloads of that. It's a, it's a pretty extraordinary podcast. Oh, it was incredible. Yeah. I, I was telling a friend about it. I said, this is the reason why podcasts are podcasts, because yeah. they weren't podcasts before this one. Yeah, no, it made them, absolutely. It did, yeah. What's happening today? Well, we're going to be looking at the situation at St Luke's Mall uh, with the smash and grab Mm. uh, that took place yesterday. Also, we are going to be speaking to the leader of the opposition, Christopher Luxon, about the newly reinstated Sam Uffendale, of course, following that investigation. Mm. And after eight this morning, a debate from the three main Wellington mayoral candidates. We'll be speaking with incumbent Andy Foster, also Paul Eagle and Tori Farno live between 8 and 8.30. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Susie, who's here with uh, Guy on Up After Six. Well, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is in New York City for the United Nations' first full-scale General Assembly since uh, the pandemic. Comes at a pretty tumultuous time, of course, with uh, the Ukraine war likely to top the agenda. Joining us now is our own globe trotter. It's Anna Burns-Francis, who's back in the USA. Kia ora, Anna. Morena. <laughs> I don't know what day or time it is, but I know the sun's up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so tell us, what, what will be on the Prime Minister's agenda at the UN in New York this week? Well, it's going to be a busy week, and obviously everyone understands the whole week has been thrown into a bit of disarray with the global events, uh, with the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, of course, there was chat that at some point... Zelensky, the prime, 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 president excuse me, of Ukraine, might uh, pop over for a visit. So it's a bit hectic for everyone at the moment. This is, of course, the first time everyone's had the opportunity to meet other face-to-face, the first time in two and a half, three years nearly, I think it is. It's been a long time. So number one is having some face-to-face time with people. But you've got to say for our prime minister, it will also be that Christchurch call summit that's happening this afternoon uh, with the French mission here at the UN. There's a meeting, there's a press conference, and we've been promised there's some big announcements. Of course, things have wavered a little bit over the past couple of years with the action or the tangible outcomes the prime minister's managed to present to the public about what the Christchurch call actually can do in reducing exposure to violent terrorist information Online, so it'll be interesting to see what she manages to make out of this week. Um, I also saw uh, uh, pictures as well on the old interwebs there that the Prime Minister managing to hitch a ride with the Canadians, who seemed quite charmed uh, to have uh, the Prime Minister on the plane there with uh, their Prime Minister, uh, Justin Trudeau. Well, exclusive, you heard it, heard it here first. She simply sent out a text to find out who was coming this way and who she could grab a ride with. <laughs> That's great. And Justin said, 
come aboard. He's got Wi-Fi. They had a little bilateral on the plane. It all seemed to work out quite well. And obviously, this is where everyone's headed. So what better way to do it on uh, Canada Air Force One? That's great. Yeah, that's right. Because our one, I think, it still needs some tinkering going on. I see that the good people of Whenuapai, they're getting those planes up, but they're not going so well. So anyway, we found out that's what uh, the Prime Minister's going to be doing, how she got there with the texts. That's great. Wonder, did she give petrol money, by the way? Is it still five bucks? Is five bucks still petrol? I'd probably yeah, not. Yeah, so I did want to know how much does it cost, but I think in the spirit of um, diplomatic relations and an international high-level high talks week, this might have been good spirit from the Canadians, very generously offering yeah. us a seat and a meeting at the same time. How ancient do I sound saying is five bucks still petrol money? It's not 20 bucks easily. Hey, uh, fine, uh, what, tell us about what will be the big issues on the agenda at this UN uh, General Assembly? Well, so obviously the pandemic, or if you're in some countries like the United States, there is no pandemic anymore, but certainly after effects of a pandemic, is still a massive talking point. There's also, obviously, world conflicts like Ukraine, but African nations here are raising a very valid point that they are being ignored and the conflicts in their region are being ignored because of high-profile uh, conflicts between the likes of Russia and Ukraine. So that's become a big talking point. Interestingly, we're hearing a lot about food insecurity. Now, that is obviously related to not only conflicts, but also the issues that have driven, uh, been driven by the pandemic. Obviously, after all this time, there are huge issues with inflation, energy crises, and food insecurity. So those are the big picture talking points that we'll see and hear a lot about this week. Anna, how's your last week been? You know, like, like we, you know, like opened week? up, with, yeah, <laughs> jumping around. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, and you've got to think for for myself. I, I think probably the prime minister feels the same way. You have to wake up each day and go, okay, what is the priority for today? There's a lot of really big world events happening at the moment, and I think you know the UN is usually one of those big global earmark events of each calendar year. But this year, you sort of look back and you think, what is the priority here, and which which issue do you tackle? Because there just seems to be so much going on. It can feel like it's swamping you a bit. But I think you know that's what these meetings are for. I suppose everyone gets together and knocks out a few notes and works out where we go to for the next 12 months. Well, Anna, we're very grateful for your work. Thank you very much for sharing it with us. This year's Anna Burns Francis, who is back in the US of A. Well, finally this morning, some of your feedback. We had a lot of it come in. This one from Claire from Napier First. What, Anna Nathan, I don't buy Luxon taking the weekend to digest the due report. Over the weekend, Uffendale was at a women's expo in Tauranga. National Central North Island Regional Chair Andrew Von Dardelson posted a photo of Uffendale holding a National Party rosette and said Sam is an excellent heart itching to get back to work supporting Tauranga in Wellington. So it seems like they already knew that he had been let off the hook once again. His maiden speech about consequences for actions smacks of hypocrisy and shows the National Party is far from cleaning up its selection process. That is clear in Napier. This one's come in without a name on it, releasing the Sam Uffendale report Result feels like a smokescreen, sneaky indeed. It makes you wonder. Lee said, well, this isn't going down well for National. Lee said, Luxon is sneaky with this announcement. What's also sneaky is that Sam Uffendale's selection committee, led by Todd McClay, who were said to have been informed of his bullying past by Uffendale, but kept the knowledge quiet and chose him anyway. Uh, Catherine Grace is enjoying the show. Uh, yeah, look, we've got, a, we've got an awesome team that put this together and they all try really hard. So uh, thank you for that. We'll pass that on to everyone. And Andrew says, what's this podcast you recommended, Nathan? Okay, it is it is called Serial. Now, there are various versions of Serial. It came out as part of This American Life, which was a public access, uh, access radio show where they did little mini documentaries and it's quite an incredible story. They were used to 150 downloads uh, of their stories. But this one arrived 
um, on the step of one of their reporters, Sarah Koenig, and they realised things were going a little weird when they looked at the download numbers one week and they thought that their IT system was broken and they went, why are there 150,000 downloads of this? And it's because it's one of the most compelling and enjoyable and sad pieces of journalism you'll ever hear. So Serial spelled S-E-R-I-A-L. Season 1, the other one's not quite as compelling. Anyway, uh, there you are, Andrew. Uh, yeah, if you want to have a listen to that one, it's the original. Look, Morning Report is next with Susie and Corin From all of us here at First Up, I hope you have a wonderful day. We'll be back in your ears, our uh, Paul. Paul.